Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time once again. We are broadcasting live from a secure bunker at an old Pan Am terminal. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is our other host and my high-stakes go-fish partner, Tyler Crawley. How's it going, man? It's good. It's good. I just realized that you're pretty much never... I was thinking you're going to run out of places at some point, but I don't think that's possible. I mean, there's so many defunct businesses that... I think you're going to be good. So my earlier concern has been I will will be stricken from the record going forward. Good. I I, f- I feel like you should have a little bit more faith in me at this point. <laughs> and it's it's embarrassing that you don't. <laughs> All right. But here, you know what's interesting, though, is that in, I don't know, maybe a decade or so, one of the companies that you can list, well, actually, it won't be a company. It'll be the United States government. You can list the United States government, formerly known as the United States government. I don't know what will be then. Uh, and the it'll reason I bring symbol. that up. Yeah, we'll be symbol, symbol like Prince. <laughs> it will be the country formerly known as the United States of America. Uh, and the reason I say that is a new report is out uh, from the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, for the 2018 fiscal year. And they point out that the big five spending categories for federal government outlays for the year were as follows. Social Security benefits at $918 billion. Medicare at 560, Medicaid at 350, military at 550, and net interest on the public debt 343 billion. Now, the CBO is projecting that by 2023, interest payments will be more than what we are spending on national defense. By 2025, the government will spend more on debt interest than every non-defense discretionary federal program combined. So basically our entire budget besides defense, uh, will be smaller than what we're paying on our interest payments. Kevin, how is this not the biggest freaking story in the country right now? I don't know, man. It's I, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I brought up how I was watching an old episode of Ride on Campus when Obama had just been elected, and we had this whole episode talking about the budget and deficit spending and the national debt. And here we are now, and it's beyond what I think we could have even imagined 10 or 12 years ago. So uh, I don't know why it's not a big story. And I was watching CNBC, I guess it was the end of last week. And one of the pundits on there was talking about how he says he, he just feels like neither party talks about it anymore. They just they just continue to kick the can down the road. It used to be a big uh, you know, talking point with the markets and election season, it was kind of, you know, is government going to rein in spending? And that was a big discussion. And he said, now neither party talks about it. They just spend on what they want to and and just keep keep kicking the can down the road. And at this point, I mean, these numbers are so huge. I don't I mean, I don't know what you do, even if we just completely revamped all government spending, we're still going to be in a big mess. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you look at the actually crunch the numbers, and this is all off the top of my head, I don't have anything in front of me, but I think we're so we're running a trillion dollar deficit. So I mean, put that in context. If we were to cut a trillion dollars off of our spending, we'd be breaking even. So we still wouldn't be we still wouldn't be paying anything off. We would just be at a break even point. Now imagine if we cut spending by a trillion dollars, what sort of impact that would have on the economy. And a lot of people have said that there is a way. And, and the thing that's so upsetting about this is that we still can do something that wouldn't be immensely upsetting. 
So we can still slowly start, you know, increasing taxes a little bit, uh, cutting spending, cutting, you know, our mandatory spending programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, do these things that, yes, it's going to cause people are going to be a little upset, especially, you know, those that are you know, planning on getting full social security checks in maybe five, 10 years or whatever. I mean, it wouldn't affect any current recipients. Um, and so, yeah, we'd have to do some of these things and yeah, it would cause a little disruption and people have to plan a little differently, but it's so much better than the alternative, which is we just don't do anything. And then we get to the point where, as I said, our interest payments are more than our entire budget. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, we're at the, we're at the point now where the three biggest outlays are going to be mandatory spending, which means it's not even under the purview of Congress. It's going to be Social Security, Medicare, and in and our debt payments. I mean, none of those things Congress can control unless they do, you know, this big giant. I mean, this isn't just a line item. I mean, this is like Congress has to pass legislation to deal with it. And it's the longer we wait, the worse it's going to get. If we just did something now. It, it would be it would be like I said a disruption, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. But pretty, we're getting to the point where we're, we're going to have to essentially just declare Social Security bankrupt and everyone loses everything. I mean, and so it's like that would be so much more devastating. And yet, that's the only other that's the only option if we keep waiting 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, I think we have probably thirty years, and then we're going to get to that point where we basically declare bankruptcy. But we could do something but, uh, now, but we just don't. But isn't that the point that we are at right now with the the national electorate? It's it's no long term thinking. It's knee jerk election after election, just switch back party to party. Um, you know, to do any sort of meaningful reform would require responsible people in both parties not worrying about getting reelected, right? Because isn't that going to be the big issue if you come out? I mean, I remember this in the Bush administration. They talked about. Uh, entitlement reforms and people lost their minds and it quickly got tabled. Well, it destroyed uh, 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 Bush's second term. That yeah. was the first thing he pushed after getting elected and going, hey, I got a mandate. I can do something. And he pushed uh, Social Security privatization, which would have been, I mean, look where the Dow is. Yeah, that would have been a bad idea, idiots. Um, I, mean, think, <laughs> right. I, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's we had we had the recession, but look, look where it is now. I mean, all things being equal, we would have been great position. But instead, it's sitting in an almost non interest bearing account and which is basically is loaning it to the federal government. And then they pay us, you know, they they, <laughs> they don't pay us anything on it, really. And so instead of putting it in the market, which would I mean, think about what that would do with regards to just having that money available. I mean, just it's like insane. But we didn't do it. And it destroyed Bush's second term. And so, and then now you got people like Trump who go, not only are we not going to cut social security, we're going to increase it, which by the way, they are doing, they're actually increasing it by the largest amount, like in the last like decade. And then on top of it, he wants to cut taxes. Listen, I love cutting taxes, but not when you don't cut spending. <laughs> That's insane. I think any politician right now going forward, this is today is the day, any politician going forward that proposes cutting taxes or increasing spending without it being offset should immediately be stripped of their duties and tested for their and, and, and given a psych eval to make sure they have the mental capacity to be in Washington. Because how anyone can propose those things and be an adult is beyond me. I feel like you posted that on Twitter today. 
I did. Those are some those are some good words of wisdom because I, I think I liked it. I hearted, <laughs> well, a, I hearted what good, you said. It's a good way to get Alexandria Ocasio Cortez out of Washington pretty quickly because she's already calling for more spending increases, <laughs> especially with her own salary. So <laughs> she's already on board with that. Yeah. Well, Tyler, what we are talking about here is a a complete failure of of government and bureaucracy and any sort of remote function of an operation of a government as it was designed. And here we are nearly a week since the midterm elections. And guess what? We still don't even have official vote tallies in from the midterms. That's right. In the 18 years since the infamous Florida recount, we literally have the exact same method of counting ballots. The greatest country in the entire world can't figure out how to securely add numbers together. Let's take a look at what other things that we have, though, been able to accomplish in this same 18-year period. You know, we invented the iPhone, Bluetooth technology, Blu-ray discs, Facebook, YouTube. The first hybrid car was sold worldwide. And, uh, you know, we can even wirelessly and securely pay for just about anything at a retail store using our phones or even watches. Yet, somehow, we still can't figure out how to vote. Tyler, With ballots being driven to the Board of Elections in the back of somebody's Hyundai, is this just government at its finest? What I think is great about the story is it's not even so much they haven't counted the votes. I mean, that's embarrassing, especially, you know, because Florida, 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 if Florida was the most populous state, then I could say, okay, that's why it's taking so long, but it's not. And so all the other states that have counted their ballots, I mean, Florida is on the East Coast. That means the, the polls closed the earliest. And California, okay, they're a bigger state, you know, more people. Okay, fine. And I think we even have their vote tallies. But here's the thing that drives me crazy about Florida. They can't even tell you how many people voted in the election. Like, it's not even counting the ballots. Like, you know, when you go in, you put your ballot in, and it goes, you're number 410 at this polling place. Like, they can't even add up all those numbers. They don't even know. They don't even know how many people voted. So it's not even us getting to all the votes and figuring out what we keep and what we don't, which they're messing up as well. But even just the basic knowledge and maintaining the data of how many people voted in Florida is a mystery right now. We don't even know. And well, isn't that that's disgusting. <laughs> well, I mean, and isn't that really truthfully the big story with the premise behind voter ID and voter integrity? Because I know a lot of people on the right want to say, you know, well, we've got illegals or dead people voting. And then you've got people on the left who, well, I don't think they really care who votes. But what happens is that we really and truthfully have no idea who is voting, where they're voting. I mean, you could vote probably in all 50 states if you really put a lot of effort in and had a private jet. I mean, isn't isn't that kind of a problem in this day and age when we have so much technology to identify people, their their real I mean, couldn't couldn't Twitter blue check mark everybody for votes or something? <laughs> there are a lot of verification systems. I mean, this is the thing, and, th- and this is why voter ID passed in North Carolina. It's why it passes everywhere it's on the ballot. Because nobody in society that's you know sound mind uh, thinks there's anything wrong with showing an ID. I mean, we got to show an ID every day. I got to go show an ID when you go to the liquor store to make sure your credit card matches up. You got to show an ID when you're getting on a plane. You got to show ID all these places. And, you know, the Democrats are always like, well, what about the 105 year old woman born in a barn? And I'm like, all right, fine. She's grandfathered in. Next. 
Like one person. All right. What's what's the second it's the straw option? man? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there are people that fall into that category, but it's like, okay, we'll deal with them. You know, they're acting like there there's 20% of the population is 105 years old and was born in a barn. It's like six people in the entire country fall into this category. We don't have a birth certificate for. So everyone over the age of say like 75, we grandfather in no ID, right? Because some, you know, older people don't have IDs because they don't drive anymore. So, okay, fine. But everyone under the age of 70, I mean, this idea, like they're like, well, college kids, I don't know about you, Kevin, but you know, we were in college together. Did you know anyone without a, a, a driver's license? Like, where are these in mass college kids that don't have driver's license? Like, these just these scenarios that are put forward. And that's why people vote for voter ID because it, it makes sense and it's a way to verify. And I think what the Republicans need to do um, to sort of get the Democrats on board is also admit that probably one of the biggest areas where we're most vulnerable is absentee balloting or absentee ballot voting. And I think that, you know, the Republicans tend to do better with absentee ballots. And so what we should admit is, hey, let's make the entire system safer. But Republicans tend to ignore absentee ballots because we do somewhat well with those. And so it tend to focus on the, the but there's there's voter fraud with absentee ballots. And so I think what we need to do is make the entire system safer and get everyone on board with sort of a bipartisan kind of agreement on that. No, I completely agree. And I think that this sort of issue falls directly in line with what you were just talking about with the debt and the deficits, right? Like certain people pretend like they don't care about it. Other people act like they care about it and don't do anything about it. And here in this very election, you have the mess going on in Florida, where at the same time you have Abrams in Georgia talking about voter integrity issues. So it's it's not partisan, even though a lot of people want to make it that way. And so, but but what it's going to take is people on both sides in both parties to come together and do something about it. And unfortunately, it seems like unified solutions are a lot smaller of a, of a likely outcome than just completely fighting and battling each other back and forth on it. That seems to be all people want to do. And then it becomes just this inflammation of, of well, they did that or they didn't do that. I mean, right, we, we have all this divisiveness Instead of people saying, OK, why can't we solve a voter problem? And here we are, like I said, 18 years after the hanging Chad. And we, we still we, we haven't figured it out. No one has stepped up and said, let's solve this problem. Whereas the private sector is solving so many problems with security. And I mean, like I said, I can take my iPhone to a cash register, hold it up. It securely sends a um, an anonymized code to the touchless pay system. So they don't even know my credit card number. I mean, that's how advanced that we are with the secure enclave and, and different, uh, you know, of, of these in, encryption technologies for NFC. But yet somehow we can't figure out how to vote other than walking up and telling them our name and our address. That that has to be the, who does that prevent from causing voter fraud? I, I, I just can't wrap my head around it whatsoever. Well, I mean, I think the voting issue is like every other issue in politics. It's the whole safety versus freedom. And safety in this case isn't really like a physical threat, but more of an idea of preventing fraud. And so the safer you make something, the less free it is and the more restrictive it is. And the way both parties have, are currently aligned is, you know, Democrats as or Republicans, I should say, as usual, uh, are you know concerned about safety. Um, and they're concerned about voter fraud. And then you have the left who used to be about freedom, not so much anymore, 
uh, they're taking that stance on this issue, saying we cannot do anything to restrict and suppress the vote. And so the reality is, is that you have to have some restrictions. I mean, the Democrats even admit that because if you know it wasn't, you could just you know you wouldn't even have to say your address. You just you just walk up and give me a ballot, and they'd give you a ballot. You don't have to say your name; just fill it out. And you could come back a thousand times if you wanted, and they're just going to be, hey, you don't want to do anything to suppress and make you say your name, or and so they they clearly believe that there's something that should be done to prove, hey, this is who I am, and you have to do some verification. But what degree of that? is the is the debate and clearly i think voter id is a step that most people do not think is too far uh and i think that that's a that's a good step and we'll see um you know how like i said how this plays out but at some point it is going to go to the supreme court and will the supreme court say it's too stringent um or is it constitutional they're going to decide on that but this will be decided by the supreme court because now we have it in our constitution and so it's going to be law unless the Supreme Court, like Amendment 1 with the marriage amendment, says, no, you have to take it out because it's unconstitutional. So at some point, this will go to the Supreme Court and then we'll have a definitive answer on what is considered voter suppression and what's considered um, uh, you know, uh, allowable to protect the sanctity of voting. But speaking of controversial issues, Kevin, a plane with a banner that references Silent Sam – was spotted flying over Chapel Hill on Sunday morning. The small plane carried a banner behind it with a Confederate battle flag, because why not? And the words, Restore Silent Sam Now. UNC officials uh, are still determining where the statue's fate, which was pulled down forcefully back in August and uh, had until November the 14th or 15th to make a decision. They have now pushed that decision back to December 14th, essentially punning on the issue, delaying the inevitable, which will be the decision on if they put the statue back up. Do they keep it on campus? What do they do with it? So, Kevin, can we punt on this issue indefinitely or should we all start preparing for Civil War 2019? I mean, I'm prepared. I don't know about you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, uh, you know, I'm at this weird crossroads where I'm like, okay, if this is really the big deal that people make it out to be, and I think that there are valid concerns on all sides. I don't agree with the concerns on a particular side, but I understand they feel a certain way and that's totally fine. So, but but I think what we have to do is is we can't just half, you know, half do it. I will say for for our PG rating, we can't just half do it. What we have to do is instead go one hundred percent and just completely remove, abolish, you know, scrape every name off of every building. Just go full fledged in 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 the direction of not offending anyone. I mean the multicultural table that's right near Silent Sam, it's got to go, right? Because I'm sure that could offend someone. Uh, the buildings that were named after racist uh, Democrats, mind you, that were part of the, the UNC school back in the day, they've, they've already taken their name off of one. I think they shouldn't name halls. It should just be building one, building two. You know, I think if we're going to do it, I think that's just the way that we have to do so that it's 100% free of any possible... Um, I don't even know if the word inanimate oppression, I think, is what we need to to make sure we're protecting people from. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, uh, I think that'd be the smart move, um, because let's face it, I, if, if there's any family that's been here that goes back to slavery, then more than likely they probably own slaves. And so that would mean regardless, 
you know, good luck finding a family that doesn't fall into that category. I mean, I don't care if you're in the North or South and it's, it seems to be that that's the game that we're playing where it's like the, you know, lineage, whatever game. I don't even know what you would call it. Um, where you go back far enough, you find someone, uh Oh, you don't get to have a building anymore or you don't get to have, um, a statue anymore. You don't get to have any of these things because this is, you know, what your family stood for and this is how horrible things are. And I said, I mean, anyone that isn't, you know, first generation immigrant, you know, you're probably going to go back and find some, some problematic things. I mean, even if you go back I mean, the civil rights era, in the way black people were treated. I'm sure you can find a lot of white families that were not exactly accepting of uh, minorities. And so, yeah, I mean, to avoid any possible problem in the future, no buildings named after anyone. And I think that should even include, because what they'll say is, oh, you mean no white people? And that's what the, that's what they want. But absolute in reality, it should be no, no, not anybody, because you could probably find, you know, black people and Hispanic people that have been horrible to other races. And so just to be safe, I like it, you know, building one, building two, or just name it what it should be called, the political science building and the math building, and just go back to that. It'd be a lot easier for freshmen to find where they're supposed to be going the first day of class if you just call it the math building. Oh, that's where math is. What a wonderful idea instead of like, you know. But then, but wouldn't those buildings be gerrymandered if you had smaller classes in there? I mean, or would you have to like hyphenate it if you had, math say, one and math eight? Two? Math one, math two, but also maybe if it's the math, earth, science, geography building, right? And Because if there's one class in there, it has to be represented. That's true. But then you face the problem of, you know, do you put math first or do you put earth science first? Because math is the bigger subject, but earth science alphabetically – and also is more environmentally friendly. And so maybe that should get the first slot. So that's, then you face that problem. And you don't um, want the do underrepresented, right? Cause you don't want the underrepresented courses to be further down the list. Cause it would make them seem unimportant. Then those students wouldn't feel like their major was as important as the other majors. Exactly. Therefore they wouldn't do well in them. And then therefore for the rest of their lives, they're going to be drawing out of that entitlement program. That's going to be the biggest budget item in the history of the world, all because we put earth science last on the building name. Yeah. We, the, the fate of the world is in our hands and, and we've got butterfingers. I mean, it's, it's sort of, there's really no winning solution here other than, you know, I guess go back to your original building one bill, but then, but then are you ranking the buildings by geography? Are you ranking them by importance? I don't know. I think we should all, we just should just all call them building and just let everyone figure it out. If you can't find your class, you probably shouldn't be taking it. But building, in, in fairness, is a word invented by men, probably of Western civilization. So that's not very culturally uh, sensitive of us either. That's true. So plus, I'm not sure. plus the B is just not – it just it, – it, 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 it looks like part of the female anatomy and I just think that's sexist. So we got to get, get the letter B out of there. So just – I can – Building. Basically, I think what we need to do is bulldoze UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> that's that's the only fair thing to do. Except for the, the, the Dean Smith Center. You can keep that, right? That's Well, that was built by by some great men. And um, <laughs> oh, you can't they, really argue be, about why that. Why they got to be men, Kevin? Maybe women built it. I, last time I checked, there were no women on the 1982 championship team uh, or the why? 2009 or the 2017. Why? Well, you why? know what? I, got a, I have a feeling a lot of people 
back in the 1980s were running track for the United States, probably thought there were no women on their team either. And <laughs> look what happened. <laughs> so going to throw that out there. Oh, I got no women on this team. Uh, not so That's much true. in 20, 2018. You should, you should <laughs> really not assume. And one of the things that I think was a big assumption last week was – the election, right? We've talked about this a lot. Was it going to be blue wave? Was it going to be not a blue wave, a red statement or or something? And what I think ended up happening is that on a national level, it was a less of a blue wave than anybody was maybe hoping or anticipating. But actually in North Carolina, I think it was a blue wave. And I don't think that the election went the way that Republicans were hoping for. In one fell swoop, the GOP lost their supermajority in both the House and the Senate, and it shifted a lot of power back to Ray Cooper and his veto authority. Depending on how the recounts and the close races finally shape up, because like I said, we're a week out and they still don't have the exact numbers down, it looks like it's going to be a loss of 10 seats in the House and six seats in the Senate. Democrats also gained a seat on the North Carolina Supreme Court, and two seats on the Court of Appeals. Another staggering number from the election is the $16.3 million the North Carolina Democrat Party spent, and that was just through October 20th, so I'm sure there was uh, a couple million more in the final couple weeks of the uh, the home stretch there, and that's compared to $7.8 million by the North Carolina Republican Party. Tyler, with Democrats winning overwhelmingly and vastly outspending the GOP, is it time that we start decrying the evils of money in politics and obviously the gerrymandering that's been going on? Yeah. No, I mean, money was a problem in North Carolina. George Soros getting involved in the constitutional amendment battles. we got teachers unions. I mean, this is this. The, you know, the Demo- Democrats hate uh, money until they don't. Um, and I, and what my favorite thing is, I think I was watching. Uh, I think it was Beto O'Rourke who was given his. Uh, what do you call it? Concession speech. Excuse me, Tyler. It's Robert Francis O'Rourke. Oh, yes. I apologize for that. Did you see the uh, the Facebook meme where it was uh, it was Beto, but they spelled it like the French way, you know, with like the however, you know, with like the UAX or whatever at the end. And he's no, like, hey, Louisiana. <laughs> My name's Beto. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just, he's just going to keep changing every single state that has a Senate opening. Uh, and but yeah, I mean, he, he was giving his concession speech. And he made this comment about we didn't accept any money from PACs and corporations or whatever. It's like, dude, shut up. So you got $70 million. You're telling me you got $70 million in like $5 donations from like grandmothers and like hardworking college students. Like, get out of here. Like, he might actually believe that. I don't know how smart he is. Maybe he, maybe he believes that. I don't know. Is it Beyonce a corporation? Yes. Yes, that's right. She's no Jay Z. Jay Z, right? He's not a businessman. He's a business man. Man, isn't that the, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know without qualify. If you get money from Jay Z, is that from a business or is it from a business man? So I just thought that was so funny because we're talking about you know he, he's acting like oh it was all small. It's like come on, dude, you got seventy million dollars. You're telling me like George Soros and these guys aren't behind it. And I don't want to get all conspiracy here and you know George Soros is the root of all evil, but they have ways of finding ways to funnel money to people. I mean, we know that. I mean, that's that's how they the Democrats are amazing at setting up these donor networks and finding ways to funnel money to people. And we know that there was a finite amount of money out there because a lot of the other Democrats around the country were angry at how much money that Beto got. But back to North Carolina, yeah, I mean, the Democrats raised a boatload of money 
and uh, the Republicans were in sort of a bad position. But it's I don't know how big of an issue money played, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, if you look at what happened in North Carolina, it mirrored what happened nationally in that the suburbs in cities, uh, that used to be Republican went Democrat and we saw that across the country. And so we saw in places where money was spent. We saw in places where money wasn't spent. So I don't, once again, I don't know how big of a role money plays. I feel like money, uh, at some point there's the law of diminishing returns, where you know, to, there's a certain level where it, it, it tremendously increases your chances of winning. And then you get to a point where at that point, you're just sort of wasting it. And I feel like that the Democrats raised enough that it was okay, but whether or not they had a two to one advantage or a five to one advantage, I don't think it matters at that point. And I just think the Democrats, it was, you know, it was their benefit. Uh, we're seeing a lot of demographic changes, geographic changes, and the Democrats, yeah, I mean, they, they, they took advantage of it. Uh, nationally and in North Carolina. Well, that's one of the things I had down here to talk about was um, sort of this premise of the urban rural divide and really where they lost the, the chunk of their seats were in Mecklenburg and Wake counties, these big urban centers. Yeah. And so, Tyler, do you think that that's really going to be the bigger story? And doesn't that also play into the fact that Democrats don't understand gerrymandering because what is happening is a natural gerrymandering. The reason you have all of these Democrats stacked into certain districts is because they live in these high, highly dense population zones like downtown Charlotte, Raleigh, the Triangle. Where I mean, that, that's what the map looks like across the country. You just have more and more people piling, piling into these small geographic areas who all vote the same way. What's really weird with what's happening right now, and we're not going to have anywhere near enough time to get into this, um, but I mean, I've got all day. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, me too. Kind of. But what's what's really bizarre about what's happening right now is that what Democrats are finding out is that they are so densely populated in these these urban metropolitan areas. And so they're just and so what's going to happen is they're going to end up accumulating more and more congressional seats. And so what was so funny is that for the last eight years, ever since the Republicans took the House and you know gerrymandered all these districts, the Democrats pretty much argued they'd never be able to take the House back. And what's weird is that as we've sort of realized, and not to mention the shift that's happened, and a lot of it has been exacerbated by Donald Trump, but it was something that was already happening where these college-educated, you know, upper-middle-class uh, whites – who kind of don't like the divisive rhetoric of Trump and maybe positions on on uh, uh, immigration and then of course trade is also another issue, is that they've been sort of moving away and this I think pushed them completely out. I mean just like just pushed them completely off the cliff and now they went to the Democrats and so what's happening is is now all of a sudden the Democrats look like they may never lose the House because as we see redistricting happen, they're going to have more and more seats accumulate in the more highly populated areas. But the Senate is going to become much more elusive to them because these places where everyone's leaving are turning redder and redder. And the Senate was never devised to sort of be a representation of the overall population. It was meant to give equal uh, representation for the states. And so what's going to happen is the Democrats are going to be in like you know 10 states and they're going to control a large majority of the of the house um, or these seats in these in these states, but they're going to have a very difficult time winning Senate seats. And so it's just so weird that in ten years we went from 
the Democrats will never win the House because of gerrymandering to now it looks like they have a very good chance of holding on to it unless things change for quite a while. But yet the Senate is going to be quite elusive. And maybe even the Electoral College could be a problem because once again, you know, the way the way those are divvied out, but those change once again based on population. So it's really weird um, the way things are, are are sort of mapping out and just like how this gerrymandering argument seems to have disappeared. Now, now all of a sudden it doesn't matter. Like I, it's just I don't, I don't I don't I don't know what happened to this. Like we're never going to take back the House. Now they've taken it back and won you know forty plus seats. It it's so gerrymandering is a problem or it's not. I I'm, I'm confused. Well, isn't that the whole the whole takeaway that should be garnered from the Trump presidency? If if nothing else, that people on both sides should realize that government isn't functioning the way it was designed. The reason that you're so afraid of Trump is because the House has lost its power. There isn't budget. They're they're not making budgets. They're not trying to keep the fiscal house in order. That's out of control. You have the Senate, which is now a popularly elected position, which it has been for quite some time, obviously. But that's not what it was intended to be. It was like you said, it was supposed to make sure that the states had representation. And so I feel like the entire republic structure is just in total disarray and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, we've seen this for 250 years. It's been a slow erosion. So it's not just like Trump broke everything, although he's a little bit of a bull in a China shop, but he's, you know, tr- tr- uh, Obama and Bush and everyone before him led to this sort of conundrum that we have. Well, and, and, and yes, they are taking more power from the executive branch, even though Trump, to his credit, actually has pushed some of it to Congress or tried to get Congress involved, like DACA and some of these other um, issues. However, trade, he does seem to still think the executive should have more control and immigration. He does think that they should have more control like the birthright citizenship. But th- that is an issue. But really, it's the Democrats right now who wants to get rid of the Electoral College and they want to get rid of the way the Senate is done because they're realizing that the way that they are they're stacking up geographically is going to make it very difficult, especially in the Senate. Now, like I said, Electoral College wise, you know, those those change based on population, just like congressional seats. And that's how they're based. That's how electoral votes are based. And so there is the possibility that they could eventually you know, build up enough congressional districts in some of these states where they could win. But the Senate will always be elusive to them unless they can make inroads in some of these more rural states. But I think at the same time, this is an opportunity for Republicans to realize, because this morning I was actually talking with um, – Ray Nostein at um, uh, Civitas about this very issue. He wrote about this. And one of the things that people need to remember is that everyone acts like, you know, these cities are central planning liberal utopias and, you know, these rural districts are, you know, freedom the way God intended. That's true. But there are a lot of people that live in these cities that do not like government, but live there for the reality is, is that that's where they have to be in order to make money. And, you know, they're capitalists. And so they have to live in New York and D.C. and other places. And there are people living in these rural districts who are far more reliant on the federal government than the people in the cities are. You know, some of these farmers who get farm subsidies, some of these uh, families that live in towns that the mills close down and they've been living off the government ever since. And so it's not as clear cut as this is making us believe that it is. And so I think the Democrats can make inroads in places like Kansas. And I think that Republicans can make inroads in places like New York and D.C., but they got to try. And it seems like they're just giving up. And it's like, all right, you guys take the South and the Midwest and we're going to take the coast. Okay, good, good. And that's what sort of it looks like is happening. 
if only we had states' rights, maybe, <laughs> then, then we could do something racist? about that. You're a racist, Kevin. That's what states' rights It's a code. It's a dog whistle. Dog whistle. Well, if I, if I whistle, then my dogs will actually come running, and that will completely interrupt what we've got going on here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep my dog whistles to a minimum, Tower. That'd be okay. That's wrong, John, aren't we? So that'd be okay. Yeah, we are almost done. They want to run in. <laughs> I, I can call him in here if if you want to if you want them to join. But no, I mean you're right. I, I think that we've uh, we've reached a good point here. And one last thing I wanted to bring up is that unfortunately there's a little bit of sad news today, and I think that we should maybe dedicate this podcast to the great Stan Lee, who created so many of our favorite Marvel characters and and what has been known as probably the biggest movie franchise ever. Now, um, so I, I wanted to ask you if you thought that would be appropriate. Who? Stan Lee. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I was a big comic book guy growing up. Um, I was a Superman guy, so I'm, I'm a DC. Oh, you're DC. I'm DC. Oh. I'm DC. Um, and, you know, it's, DC's been have a little trouble. Marvel. Marvel. Uh, I mean, let's not forget, though, Stan Lee, you know, did something amazing, which was uh, one of my favorite, you know, comments about capitalism is um, necessity is the mother of invention. And as everyone knows, and you can go back and look this up, is that, you know, Stan Lee and Marvel, as the comics sort of died off, people were no longer buying comic books and they were having problems. They were making movies and they just weren't doing well. Because remember, this is back when, you know, Christopher Nolan and, you know, this is back sort of the, the reemergence of the comic book movie. And they were looking for darker movies, you know, the Tim Burton and all those things. Uh, and then you had the Chris Nolans and, you know, these 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 sort of real comic book movies. And Marvel had sold off all their good properties. And so they were only left with like the B team. And they essentially had one option left and it was Iron Man. And they put pretty much all of their money into that movie and it ended up being a huge success. And now, you know, multiple, you know, a decade later, and now they're one of the most profitable franchises and they're actually have so much money they're bringing back, you know, they're buying back their own properties. But what I love about that is they took Iron Man, which was, I mean, who knew who Iron Man was? When I was growing up, Iron Man was like the dumb comic. Like, who bought Iron Man? But Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark, amazing, casting amazing. I mean, just that movie was perfect for this time. And he saved the franchise. But like I said, he wouldn't have done that. They would have focused on one of their other properties, um, you know, like Spider-Man or something. And they would have tried to make that work. But because they, all they had left was Iron Man, they had to make it work with Iron Man. They made a great movie and ended up taking a B person into an A list. And so I just that, that's my favorite part of the whole Stanley Marvel story is what they did there in the last decade and, and work with what they had and made it work. That's what you got to do sometimes, you know. We only have very little talent, but we make it work right here, and we <laughs> yeah, do it. We're B level every single if, week. You combine the Bs, we get an A, right? Isn't that how that works? It's like That's two exactly negatives make a works. positive. <laughs> a double positive. Double positive. Right. Yeah, I like that. Double positive. Well, I'm double positive. Sure that we will do this again next week. And thank you for joining me, Tyler. Well, Kevin, we'll, uh, did you we'll, want to? Did you want to give your take on the whole Marvel thing? I felt kind of bad. Well, I want to take all the time. No, I mean, I just I just thought like, I mean, he's responsible for a lot of what pulp culture is right now. And it took him a long time. He's passed away at 95 years old. So I think it took a while to see his his dream really come to fruition. 
but that should be an inspiration for us all. Yeah. I mean, he was close to almost, you know, dying with like nothing. And I'm sure he died a very, very, very wealthy man. <laughs> Can't it's take amazing it with you, how though. that goes. So I, um, I, I, I don't know who's, I don't know who's in this well, but I'm sure they're, they're, uh, they're going to be okay. <laughs> Maybe we should find a podcast sponsor for a, uh, you know, an estate attorney, maybe. <laughs> That's a good idea. We, we might be in the will. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I, um, I hope that if, if for some reason I was in Stan Lee's uh, will, you will not hear me next week. It will be Tyler hosting by himself. I love how you act like we get paid for this and like you wouldn't be able to do it if like you're only here because for a paycheck. Like I'm here. I'm just here for the money, making it making it rain. Hey, wait, are you supposed to be sharing that with me? Because I don't think I'm getting a piece of that. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> whoops, whoops. I'm, you're, you're breaking up, Tyler. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't I can't hear you anymore. All right. Well, I'll be back here next week, regardless of what Kevin ends up doing. So we'll see Sounds you next great. Week. I'll see you then.